Well, it was back in December of 2010 that Angel and I had the, the blessing to be able to travel to Japan. It was a great trip before we had kids. What's interesting, though, is that uh, just a few months later is March of 2011 that that huge tsunami struck Japan, leading to the Fukushima disaster. We were there just a few months before, and, and tsunamis are real trouble in Japan. No country gets more tsunamis or worse tsunamis than Japan. In fact, tsunami is a Japanese word. Almost 200 have been recorded there. What makes them so devastating is that they're a one-two punch. You've got an earthquake that comes first and just knocks everything down. And then uh, the tsunami follows and just erases the face of the earth. Now, sometimes there's nothing you can do to prepare for these tsunamis. Unbelievably, the worst tsunami to ever hit Japan measured at 100 feet tall. It's hard to really imagine that. But aside from the extreme cases, the Japanese are actually extremely well prepared to, to handle them, to deal with them. Everyone's very well educated about what to do when they strike. They've got a vast network of sirens set up warning people when, when one is impending. They've built these huge concrete seawalls to try and hold back the sea best they can. And why do you think all this is? Why do you think they've gone to such great lengths to prepare for tsunamis? Well, the answer should be obvious. They're, they're tired of getting wiped off the map every few years. They're tired of getting knocked down. They want their cities to remain, to be steadfast. They want to stand firm. And since tsunamis are unpredictable and they pose this constant threat, they've developed a culture of awareness where they're always on guard. And it's in this regard that we find a useful parallel here to the Christian life. Because we too face an unpredictable and ever-present threat. Waves of error and deception and persecution slam against the walls of the church all the time. And so we are called to stand firm. We must remain steadfast in the face of such onslaughts, and we do this by standing on the firm ground of God's word. Now, most Christians, they hear this, get this, they nod approvingly, like, okay, yeah, we get that. But the hard part is that constant awareness. Trials and temptations can strike it at any moment. So part of you needs to be aware all the time, on guard all the time. If you're caught sleeping, though, spiritually speaking, there's a good chance you'll get swept out to sea. And it's for this reason that the New Testament is so replete with reminders and admonishments to stand firm with a sober mind, to stand firm in the faith. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong. Galatians 5, 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Second Thessalonians 2.15, so then brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions to which you were taught. And Peter weighs in, 1 Peter 5.9, he says, resist the devil firm in your faith. In verse 12, he says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And on it goes, all throughout the New Testament, these repeated calls just stand firm. The forces of darkness are aligned against the church, and to resist, we need to stand in the truth and the grace of God. And the New Testament is filled with these reminders because, like I said, the waves of, of error and doubt, they just keep coming like, like waves do. And so we just need to keep on being reminded. And that hasn't changed today. We still need these reminders. And that's what we're going to get this morning in Philippians chapter 4. You can open your Bibles there now to Philippians chapter 4. We've been learning for weeks now. This was one of the Apostle Paul's main thrusts in his letter to the Philippians. In fact, he bookends Philippians with this dual call to stand firm, both regarding our, our individual lives and local churches, spiritual stability. It's undervalued, but it, it's a most beneficial trait, spiritual stability. It's one of the truest marks of a, a true and mature believer, and it's quality that, that's still needed today. And that's why in Philippians 4, we find these timeless lessons for, for all the church. As Paul comes to the end, he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, 
Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. We've been learning we need to complete our race of faith. We need to stand firm in the Lord. But, but how do you do that? Well, what does that really look like? It's in verses 2 through 9 now that Paul fleshes out and shows us what that looks like. This is how to stand firm in the Lord. Ultimately, our, our spiritual stability is derived from our foundation. We must be founded on the solid rock of God's word. But at the same time, we need to see how, how does that fleshed out in real life? How do you really live that out, the spiritually stable life? And it's so in verses 2 through 9 that Paul shows us, and we find a how-to. How to stand firm in the Lord. That's what we've been looking at for several weeks now. How to stand firm in the Lord. And we've seen three ways so far. Be harmonious, verses 2 and 3. Be joyous, verse 4. Be gracious, verse 5. And today, though, from verses 6 through 7, we add a fourth. It's a, it's a big one, a massive one from a pair of famous verses to be prayerful. To be prayerful. And just get you up to speed what's going on here. The Philippian church had been poisoned. The church had been poisoned. It was causing some of them to stumble. Some of them were not standing firm in their faith. What was the poison? It was anxiety. And so Paul addresses this problem in verses 6 through 7, and he gives them the cure, the cure for anxiety. He's trying to help them answer the simple question, how do you deal with life's difficulties? It's really what it comes down to. How do you stand firm in the faith when the going gets tough? No one really struggles with anxiety when, when everything's going great. When life is perfect, things are great, you typically are fine. It's when the storm comes. It's when the future is uncertain, when you lose your job, your health is declining. That's when you start to worry. It's when people suffer. And, and guess what? The Philippian church, they knew suffering. They were poor. They were afflicted. They were persecuted. And so they were starting to worry. But this worry, it's a poison. It's a poison that will seriously derail your spiritual walk. It will make you lose your balance and stumble out of place. And this poison obviously has no place in the church. And so Paul writes and exhorts them and gives them the cure for this anxiety. It's found in verses 6 through 7. Let's read that now. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7, where he calls on them next to verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Whenever you read the Bible, it's a good question to, to ask, why is this being written? Why did the author write this? So, for example, why, why do you think Paul is telling the Philippian church to not be anxious, but to pray? Probably because they were being anxious and they weren't praying. Most likely, he received this report about the church from Epaphroditus that they were just they were struggling with worry and fear and concern and anxiety. Their troubles were rising, and they were wrongly responding with fear, anxiety, and worry. Remember, they were starting to face an increasing persecution for their faith. Trials and tribulations were rising. That can't be helped, though. You can't always control your circumstances. It just might come. Nothing you can do about it. But you can control how you respond to the trials and troubles of life. And that's what Paul is getting at in these verses. How do you respond to life's difficulties? Look, there is for sure a wrong response. A response that will ensure you stumble and you, you do not handle things well. But there's also a right response that leads to a blessed result. In fact, let's just further go through and break down this passage with, with that in mind. How do you respond to life's difficulties? A wrong response, a right response, and then the result. So the wrong response, the beginning of verse 6, pretty obvious. Be anxious for nothing. Anxiety, the wrong response. 
And this comes as a present imperative in a prohibition. So it's like he's saying, stop being anxious, which seems to confirm that Philippians were indeed struggling with anxiety and worry. And they're being called, we are being called to be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. What exactly does it mean to be anxious? Well, this word is sometimes used in a positive sense where it means to be genuinely concerned for someone's welfare. Back in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul used the same word of Timothy who was genuinely concerned for the Philippian church. And that's a good thing. But most often, this word for anxiety, it's used in a negative sense. And taken this way, anxiety, it's a fearful concern. It's uneasiness of mind over an anticipated ill. It's when you're overly worried about some future event that may or may not take place. I like how one commentator puts it. It's attempting to carry the burden of the future oneself. Let's face it, though. I think we can all attest the vast majority of things we worry about end up never taking place. They never come to fruition. Anxiety is extremely powerful, though. Even though it only takes place in your mind, it can affect your body. What if I came up to you after church today and I said, you know, next week, I'd like for you to share your testimony here on Sunday morning in front of the whole church, you, next week, Sunday morning. For a lot of you, just the thought gives you anxiety. Even right now, your neck, your shoulder muscles tense up. You you start to sweat a little bit. Your pulse increases. Maybe you'd feel this way all week, that kind of knot in your stomach. And you might have trouble sleeping all week just because I told you one thing about speaking next week in front of a crowd. You get the deal, though. I mean, it, it can affect your, your lives, your body. And so what, what is it that gets you? What makes you anxious? What is it that keeps you up at night awake? I think we all have something that at the very least tempts us to worry. So a survey a while ago came up with a list of some of the top things Americans worry about. I think this is a pretty universal, but I'll read a few items on the list. Some things people worry about, money, children, relationships, health, losing a job, finding a job, paying bills, rising costs, weight, appearance, traffic, family conflict, world conflict, workplace conflict, trouble sleeping, being alone, And then, of course, death. Now, I'm sure you've never worried about any of these things before. Not not you guys. but, But in reality, I know every item on this list has the potential to make us all worry. This temptation is common to all. That being said, though, I think it's helpful to make one distinction, and that's between stress and pressure. The distinction I like to make, I think it works, a distinction between stress and pressure. I would define pressure as the weight on your shoulders from life's circumstances. And that can't be helped. It's just the weight you bear just because of life and trials and circumstances. But stress, I would define as a person's wrong response to that pressure. This is the response of fear and anxiety and worry. You can't control when, when, when pressure comes and, and life gets tough, but if you wrongly respond, you get stressed out, we would say. That's really just anxiety we're talking about. Seminary, for example, it's a high-pressure environment. I think I may have told this story before, but I remember one time when it was during files, or finals, rather, and I was under a lot of pressure, as you typically are in final season, at a final the next day. I think it was 9 a.m. or something like that. And I was planning on pretty much staying up the whole night to study, to prepare, to get ready. After dinner, I was going to take a quick nap just to recharge, and I was going to be up studying pretty much the rest of the night. And so I, I took that little nap, and when I woke up, though, to my astonishment, the clock read 9. And so I, I, I thought, well, I'm for sure, I'm, I'm already going to be late for my final, and I didn't get a chance to stay up and finish studying. So I immediately jumped out of bed. It's like someone gave me a shot of adrenaline right to my heart. You know, just like you're immediately awake and you're on all cylinders, trying to frankly get dressed and just get my things together and just get out of the door as fast as possible. I was like bouncing around our little apartment. All the while, Angel was watching me and she was very bewildered. And she finally slowed me down enough just to ask like what was going on. And I told her like I had overslept. I'm going to miss the final. I got to leave fast. 
And then she kindly explained to me, and she said, Honey, it's only 9 p.m. It's not 9 a.m. And in reality, I had only slept a few hours. But that's just what pressure can do to you. I was so high strung and wound up because of all this pressure that I just my body told me otherwise. And like I said, to a degree, this, this pressure, our body's response to pressure is involuntary. You can't necessarily control getting neck tension because you've got a lot of pressure at work. That's not necessarily in your control. But God does expect you to, to control how you respond to that pressure in your mind, in your inner man, so to speak. And this is where the sin of worry tends to live. And this is where you have the wrong response that you need to avoid. Why is this a big deal? Why is it so bad to worry in your mind? I mean, it's not like you're hurting anybody. So why is fearful anxiety such a serious sin before God? Let me give you a few reasons. First, God doesn't want you to worry because he knows it's not good for you. You may not be hurting anyone else per se, but you're hurting yourself. Anxiety can wreak havoc on your life like a tornado ripping through a town. Turn your life upside down. It's, a, it's like a massive weight sitting on your chest. Worry like this controls you and it can make you, your, it make you its slave. I know someone who is so enslaved to worry and anxiety, they won't drive on the freeway. They won't ever get in an airplane. They won't even get in an elevator. They're just so, they have so much fear over what might happen, even though it never does that it completely rules their life and burdens their life. And do you think that's how God wants us to live? He wants us to live in peace. We should have Christ as our master, not what ifs, not worry. And along these lines, a second reason anxiety is the wrong response to life's circumstances is, is that it's just futile. It's completely futile to worry, what, 99.9% of the time? It's fruitless, meaning the vast majority of what we worry about never takes place. Worrying, therefore, it's just a complete waste of time. And God doesn't want us to waste our time. Take pregnancy, for example. If you weren't here last week, you missed out the announcement. But if you haven't heard, Angel is pregnant. But pregnancy can be the most fear and worry-inducing circumstance ever. Right? There's like a million things that could go wrong. You could spend all nine months just worrying about the pregnancy. But that's, it's so much out of your hands. There's almost nothing you can do about it. It's just it's going to happen by clockwork. And although things may not always be perfect, let's face it, the vast majority of the things you would worry about, they'll never happen. They never will happen. So don't waste your time. Don't let this worry sideline you for more important things like serving God. And these are truths. I tell myself all the time when that temptation comes. But there's one more big reason why worry and anxiety are so bad, why these are serious sins before the Lord. The main reason is that these are forms of unbelief. These responses of fear and anxiety and worry, they're forms of unbelief. Now, I'm not saying you're an unbeliever if you worry. You know, we all fall into it every now and then, but... It's just that for all of us, when you respond to difficulty with worry and anxiety, you're, even if you don't realize it, you're expressing a form of unbelief. What you have to realize is that in the act of worrying, you are implicitly doubting something about God, that he's good or wise or powerful or in control. I mean, otherwise, you'd never let these things happen to you, right? But you see, when you worry in the moment, you're failing to remember and, and actively believe. No, God is good. He is powerful. He is in control. He's the sovereign over all things. And he does greatly love me. He cares for his children. And the moment you are failing to believe these truths, some lie has crept its way into your mind. And in the moment, you are believing that lie. And it's causing you to worry. And all unbelief is sin, is it not? Hebrews 11:6. without faith, it is impossible to please God. So do you think you can be pleasing to God in a state of worry, which is an expression of a lack of faith? 
hopefully you realize that this is why it's such a big deal. It's an expression of a lack of faith. A chaplain of the U.S. Senate once opened their Senate service and he prayed this saying, quote, Help us to do our very best this day and be content with today's troubles so that we shall not borrow the troubles of tomorrow. Save us from the sin of worrying, lest stomach ulcers be the badge of our lack of faith. Amen. End quote. Pretty good prayer. I mean, do you remember the night of Christ's arrest? The guards came to seize Jesus, and Peter was the one who was so high-strung and worried about what, what's going to happen. They can't take the Lord. We can't let him die. He was so worried about what might happen if Christ was arrested that he lashed out and he, he cut a guy's ear off. And as we know, he was aiming for the head, right? He wasn't aiming for the ear. He was so anxious and worried about the situation that he took matters into his own hands and talked about the wrong response. But you realize this is merely just an expression of his lack of faith in the moment. He refused to trust what Jesus had said, that this, this has to happen. These, these things must take place. He even told them, I'm going to be arrested. They will take me. I will be crucified. And it was the Father's good plan. But Peter simply was not believing. So Christ told him, put back your sword. He reminded Peter that my father, if he wanted, I could call down 12 legions of angels and we could clear all this up. But Peter just needed to have faith and trust that God was, despite what circumstances might appear to, to say, God's still in control. And he's actually working this all out according to his perfect plan. I mean, just think if Peter really stopped Jesus, we'd all be dead in our sins. I think God knew what he was doing, even in the death of Christ. But when you too worry, you are not trusting something about God. And this is unbelief. Keep your finger in Philippians and just flip over to Matthew 6, if you would. I mean, you know, this is just a, a classic passage on worry. Matthew chapter 6. I mentioned last week this truth war that often plays out in our mind. The world, Satan, our own flesh, they're, they're always prompting us with these lies. And when you buy into these lies, well, you're going to worry. You're, you're not believing some truth. And in the Sermon on the Mount, listen to how Jesus confronts these lies that spawn worry. He confronts these lies with the truth. And we must do the same. Look at Matthew 6, start at verse 25. He teaches, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as, what, as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? In other words, he's telling them, look, God cares about you, humans, his children, way more than anything else he created. God cares more about people than planets, even. So how could you really worry? I mean, don't believe the lie, especially for believers in the household of God. Don't ever believe the lie that God doesn't care about you. That's a, that's a lie that causes us to worry. God, God doesn't care. Verse 27, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? There's the futility of it. Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. You of little faith. And there it is. You see what it comes down to. Worrying like this reveals a lack of faith about whatever it is. God, he's already proved his care for you in the greatest way possible by, by sending his son Christ to die on the cross for you. 
So what must he do to prove that he cares for you? That he has you in his hands? What, what else can he do? Then he's already sent Christ. You, you need something more, a greater sign. The Lord cares for you. Have faith and trust him. Let's just finish verse 31. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I'm not sure if you noticed, but six times in this passage, Jesus used the same word for worry and anxiety as we have in Philippians 4, 6. He tells us, do not worry. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about tomorrow. Such worrying is unbelief. Instead, trust God and spend your time seeking him. Seek his righteousness. He'll care for you. So again, I'll ask you, what, what worries you in life? What circumstances keep you up? We all have something that tempts us to worry. And here, put off the wrong response. This is the wrong response, the response to avoid. If you've already fallen into it, if you're already consumed with worry and anxiety, well, repent. Replace the, the lies with the truth and, and seek the Lord. He'll forgive and he'll grant you peace. But put off this worrying this anxiety let nothing cause you to doubt god and worry and once you get this step down the wrong response to avoid well you can come to number two secondly now the right response the right response you can flip back to philippians 4 back to verse 6 the right response he says again be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The right response to life's trials and tribulations is not to worry over them, but to pray over them. Whereas nothing should cause you to worry, everything should cause you to pray. Do you see that? Everything. Worry about nothing Pray about pretty much everything. Look, it's bad when you only pray when trials come. I mean, you should probably pray more than that, but at the same time, that doesn't mean you shouldn't pray when trials come. This is part of the right response. Cry out to God when troubles arise without doubting God, without blaming God. I don't know about you, but for some reason, I always get a little bit worried when I'm on a landing airplane, I don't really trust the thing. I can't see anything. It, it never really feels stable to me. And so I always have this little feeling of worry as we're about to land. But by God's grace, every time I just, you know, acknowledge the worry, put it aside, pray, and get back to reading or something. You know, prayer, it's always the right response. Just, just remember that. Prayer is always the right response. If if anxiety is the poison, prayer is the antidote. Paul's goal here is not to give a theology lesson on prayer. He's simply emphasizing the priority of prayer. And so these three terms, prayer, supplication, request, they're all basically synonymous and they envision making specific petitions to God. I will point out, though, thanksgiving, he mentions, that should be the attitude which characterizes all of your prayers. Thanksgiving in everything. Instead of a spirit of rebellion or doubt, you should respond with the spirit of thanksgiving. Even when troubles come, you should find ways to be still thanking God. One commentator said, quote, Prayer without thanksgiving is like a bird without wings. Such a prayer cannot rise to heaven and can find no acceptance with God, end quote. When you're faced with the trials of today, you need to think back to, to yesterday, so to speak, and remember how God has been faithful to you in the past to bless you, to care for you. All those things you worried about that, that never happened, 
how he, he cares for you. And even some of the trials that, that did happen, he's still on the throne. He's still faithful. You still have Christ. Earlier, we said that anxiety is the wrong response because it ultimately doubts God's sovereign control. Right? Anxiety is the wrong response because it ultimately doubts God's sovereign control. But you realize prayer is the right response because it ultimately affirms God's sovereign control. Isn't that what you're doing when you're praying? You're affirming he's in charge. It's in his hands. I I trust him. Prayer, it's really the ultimate expression of faith and trust in God, which is why God wants us to pray so much. You don't control all things. You can't control all things. Things would be much worse if you could control all things. So just resign yourself to pray and just trust the one who is in control of all things. Let me read for you. You don't have to turn here, but let me read Psalm 23. You, You know it, I'm sure. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why was this psalm written? David writes this precisely so that we would not worry, but trust God. And the best part about this is this psalm, he acknowledges there are some legitimate things in life to worry about, potentially. David knew life has dark valleys. Life is filled with some mountains and then a lot of valleys in between. Trouble is going to rise. You're going to find trouble. The valley of the shadow of death, death on the horizon, The point he's making, though, what makes it so great is not that dark times won't come. The Bible never gives us that impression. It's a fallen world. The the, the greatness of this psalm is it teaches that when the times do come, God's still there. When you're in the dark valley, God is with me to comfort me. God is with you in your valley, whatever it is. And so why should you not fear in the valley? Well, he says, because God is with you, comforts you. Your future is still secure. You will forever dwell in the house, the Lord, uh, the Lord, uh, the house of the Lord. So if that's all true, what's there really to worry about? I mean, really, if, if, if that's all true, what is there really to worry about? You just need to trust God. You have to grow to the point where you can truly trust God and live in that trust. So back to Philippians 4. The right response to any difficulty is to pray. Put off worrying, put on prayer. Notice verse 6. It doesn't say we are telling God what to do. We're not commanding God anything. Rather, in prayer, you're humbly just letting your requests be made known to God. And then you're trusting him to to do what is best. Your purpose is to come before your, your loving Heavenly Father. You express your dependence on him. You express your your thankfulness for all he's done. You express your your desires for whatever trouble you're in. You let your request be made known. All of this, you're really expressing faith. And so this is pleasing to God. And then you just submit yourself to his will, to his plan, whatever that might be. Lord, your will be done. And you sleep easy. That's all you got to do. And so let me just ask, are you doing this? Did you even realize prayer is the cure for anxiety? And either way, are you doing this? How's your prayer life? If you're out there and you're you're just consumed with worry and anxiety and fear, are you you really praying in faith? How about give it a try? 
Or is prayer just an afterthought in your life? Prayer is supposed to have a chief seat in your life, especially when it comes to difficulties. And so the application, it's just, it's simple. You don't need like a 12-step program or anything here so fancy. Just just pray. Just, just make a habit of prayer. And pray in faith and pray often. If your struggle is daily, if your struggle is hourly, pray hourly every time. Seek the Lord in prayer and he will comfort you. This doesn't mean we check out of life's troubles. Sometimes we have to actually respond like, you know, bills are piling up, you can't pay. Hey, maybe it's time to get a second job. We still have to be responsible, but we don't have to worry, right? We still have to be responsible, but we don't have to worry. Instead, take it to the Lord in prayer. Along these lines, I have to point out as well, verse 6, it does not give us a blank check promise. Keep in mind, there's no promise here that all of your requests before God will be met. Contrary to what some false teachers might say, it is not always God's ultimate will that you're healed of your every disease or that all of your financial woes are solved. Sometimes God leaves you in the dark valley because he has a greater purpose and that in the valley, it's where you are most conformed and shaped into the image of his son. All the pressure weighing down in the valley has an effect of molding you into Christ's image. So sometimes God intends for you to pass through the valley. But he's still with you. Don't think that he's leaving you empty-handed because there's no promise that he's going to take away our every thorn in the flesh. This prayer is not a worthless exercise. It's not just some emotional crutch. One thing is guaranteed in these verses. Do you see that? One thing is guaranteed. It's not that your every wish is God's command. There's something else, though. If you put off anxiety and you put on a trustful prayer, a prayer of faith, God promises you will receive the result. So let's talk about the result, the wrong response, the right response, and thirdly here, the result. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and, verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The result that is yours is peace. Not just any peace, the peace of God. In John 14, 27, Jesus told the disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. The peace that God gives to us is not like the peace that the world offers, that the world affords. How does the world offer peace? Today in a word, I think it would be escapism or distraction. Life, modern life, is difficult. It's stressful. Yeah, we're not worrying about clothes per se, like Matthew 6. We have advanced worries, but there's still lots of worries And so the world offers distractions, drugs, alcohol, medication, TV, movies, sports, entertainment, you name it. Not all of these inherently evil, but look, this is all the world can offer, distraction. The world's peace is merely distraction. But eventually, if that's all you have, eventually trouble will catch up with you and it will get so bad that No amount of distraction really makes it better. But God offers a peace that is far better. It's far superior. It's lasting. It's satisfying. It's real. God's peace will outperform the world's peace every time, guaranteed. Most people believe it's money. If they just had more money, they'd be fine. They they wouldn't have to worry anymore. It's secure to all their worries, just like, just, okay, just a billion dollars, and I'll be fine. I won't really have to worry about anything. But history has told us that the richest men are some of the most miserable men, 
It's a false peace. Anything the world offers is a false peace. But the Lord offers you a true peace. Literally, he says, this is the peace that belongs to God is being offered to you here. And so what kind of peace do you think God himself has? If you can picture that. I mean, do you, do you picture God in heaven? He's anxious. He's watching your life. He's biting his fingernails. Not sure how things are going to turn out. He's trying his best to, to you know, care for you, but you know, just this world is really spinning out of control. You know, God is the definition of perfect peace. Nothing can shake God's joy and confidence and control. But the point is, that's the type of peace he's giving to you. And so it makes sense here that Paul says this peace surpasses all comprehension. It surpasses comprehension. It's just supernatural. God possesses perfect peace and he's happy to give it to you as you pray. As you pray, you receive this peace. Notice though, verse 7, this is actually passive. As you pray, God just floods you with this peace. His peace comes upon you. You can't really help it. It overpowers your emotions. Our emotions are strong. His peace is stronger. And so it's as simple as this. To the degree that you really trust God, you will enjoy his peace. Right? Isn't that that true? To the degree that you trust God, you will enjoy his peace. It is that simple. And verse 7 goes on to say that this peace of God does something for you. He says it guards your hearts and your minds. This verb for guard, it's a military term used of soldiers on duty. It's very fitting because as you remember, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was filled with lots of retired Roman army veterans. So like a soldier protecting a city, God, he's setting a garrison at your heart's door. And if at any moment you're attacked, circumstances rise up that threaten your peace or besiege your peace. The enemy shoots arrows of doubt and unbelief your way. God, he's promising here that he will arise and defend you, guarding your perfect peace. No matter where the attack is directed, be it your heart or your mind, God will protect your peace as you trust in him. That's the promise. For there is a final note, however, that this peace only comes to those in Christ Jesus. Do you see that at the end? This peace will guard you in Christ Jesus, and safe to say, in Christ Jesus alone. And this really is an essential point. That to enjoy the peace of God, to experience it, to have it, you have to be reconciled to God. Have you truly been reconciled to God? Have you made peace with God? This is really man's greatest need, our ultimate need. If you've not been reconciled to God in salvation, you'll never know any real peace. Not in this life and certainly not in the life to come. There's no peace for the sinner. The way of the wicked is hard. For those in rebellion against God, they will never know this perfect peace. But thanks be to God that He's made peace for us, with us. How did God do that? Through the ultimate peace offering. Even though we were the ones in rebellion, he, on our behalf, made a peace offering to bring us peace. And that, of course, is his son. He sent his son, Christ, to be sacrificed on the cross to remove the barrier of sin. That prevents us from having peace with God. All true peace comes, as verse 7 says, in Christ Jesus. And Jesus, in dying on the cross, paying for our sins, making us righteous, he reconciles us to God, giving us, therefore, peace. And so Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't buy this peace. You can't find it or, or trade for it. It comes only to those who've been reconciled to God by faith in the Son, having been filled with the Spirit, and then bearing the fruit of peace. 
And so as you pray, as you trust God, this peace will be yours. This peace will be increasing. Be reconciled to God and then live in Christ. Follow Christ by faith. This peace will be yours and increasing. So be anxious for nothing, but pray for everything. Be prayerful. And at the end of the day, if if you still need help in all this, well, look to Christ. As a a final argument here, from from greater to lesser, if you have trouble with, with worry, just just think back to the cross of Christ. Think to the cross. I mean, talk about something to worry about, right? The cross. Imagine if that was you having to go to the cross. If there is ever anything that could tempt you to worry, it's got to be the cross. Remember what the cross represents, not just a physical death, but on the cross, Jesus knew he would be bearing the full weight of God's wrath toward our sin. So talk about pressure. He was facing not just some whipping and some nails, but the wrath of God due us for our sin. And so this explains why as Jesus... He's in the Garden of Gethsemane right before the cross. He's in anguish. His sweat becomes like drops of blood, you remember. That was the involuntary response of his body to the pressure. He wasn't doubting God. He never doubted. But just that that's how heavy the weight of the cross was on his shoulders. Even before, even the night before, he was sweating blood. Still, though, Jesus never sinned. He faced his trial head on in the garden and he, he, all, he put off the wrong response. He never fell into the wrong response. He put off anxiety. He put off worry. And instead of worrying, what did he do in that garden? You can't help the pressure. You can't help the pressure of life's circumstances. It was there and it affected his body. Happens to us as well. That's not sin. You can't help it. But he could control one thing, in a sense, meaning his mind. And so he prayed. He went to the garden to pray. And he prayed with fervency. He prayed with faith. And do you remember what that, that prayer was all about? He was simply letting his requests be made known to the Father and ultimately perfectly submitting himself to the Father's perfect will. And this is precisely what Philippians 4 talks about. It was a prayer of complete trust and reliance upon God. Lord, your will be done. It's the the ultimate prayer of faith, isn't it? Lord, your will be done. I confess you're good, you're wise, you're sovereign, you're in control. Your will be done. And then, do you remember the result of that prayer? After he prayed, what was he like? Perfect peace. And get this, the peace that he had did not come Because God had removed the cross from his path. Nothing changed in his circumstances. He still was going to go to the cross. Nothing changed. But he had peace despite the fact that he was still headed to the cross. Because this is just God's supernatural peace that comes upon us and enabled him thereafter in his humanness to stand trial, endure the shame, be nailed to the cross and bear the full weight of God's wrath without offering a single complaint. From from the garden on, Jesus endured the greatest suffering, the greatest trial in human history with perfect peace. And partly he did so to show us the way, an example to follow in his footsteps. And understand, your trials are our lesser but you can have that same peace. This is the same peace promised to you when you pray, when you pray and when you trust. The Philippians 4, 6 through 7, classic verses. I'm sure you know them well, get to know them well. The same time that they're simple truths, but hold them near and dear to your hearts. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
It goes without saying that a life of worry is a life of spiritual instability. You can't grow. You can't strive. You can't serve. You can't really be an effective servant of Christ if you're consumed with worry. And so just be prayerful. Be prayerful instead and watch yourself take off. Remember, the good shepherd, he's always with you. He's the one that enables you to stand firm even in the dark valley. So fear no evil because the Lord is with you. And with that, I'll leave you with Paul's benediction from 2 Thessalonians. At the end where he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. The Lord is with us. So let's pray. Lord, we remember these truths this morning, and that this is what we need. We need the truth. You call us to stand firm in this race, despite trials and temptations, despite waves of error and doubt and deception. There's enough to easily knock us over. How can we remain firm in the faith? How can we just continue believing? How can we carry on, Lord? And the answer is the truth. We must be settled and steadfast in the truth. And here, when the, when the lies come, when the temptations come, they cause us to worry. That worry ensures we fall down, Lord. May we put it off. You, you show us a better way. Christ, Lord, you lead us in a better way. And that way is, is trust. That way is faith. Believing that God is good and wise, powerful, in control. He knows what he's doing. He's on the throne. And we near, merely need to trust and just keep seeking him. And we do this, Lord, all by prayer. Prayer, then, is the expression of this faith, of this trust. I pray you really scorch this lesson on our hearts, engrave this lesson, Lord, in our minds, that we would remember this, to be anxious for nothing, but to pray for everything. And in doing this, as we do this with faith, we will just receive the, the blessed result. It just comes. We We don't even control it, but the peace will come upon us. And we thank you for that in advance. For those here struggling with worry and anxiety, Lord, let this message and this truth sink into their hearts and turn them into prayer warriors and and give them great faith, build up their faith, that they might truly believe and cast down the doubt in their mind that's causing them to, to worry and seek you. Give them peace, Lord. All of us, we, we thank you for your peace. Though the dark valleys may still come, we know you are with us to comfort us, and ultimately we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We look forward to this. For now, we press on, we stand firm in your peace as we pray. And so we pray in Christ's name. Amen.